0: Welcome to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed.
1: Hello, hello, hello and welcome to another installment of Don't Box Me In. It's an incredible story that my guests will be sharing with us today. You know, when uh, life gets us down We have a habit of overindulging in the self-pity, you know, wallowing in the woe is me, Uh, thinking that no one can understand our pain or that no one else has it as bad as us. My guest today will make some of us feel that our problems are small, and I do mean very, very small, that we have no excuse not to rise above it all and excel. Author of the book Every Decision Matters and founder of Conquerors for Change, I welcome Arnold Harvey to Arnold Harvey the Second to Don't Box Me In today to share his story. Arnold, welcome to the show today.
2: Thank you so much, Ms. Reed. I'm honored to be a guest on your show.
1: Honored to have you. Honored to have you. So let's let's start off where where all of this began. You um, served some time in the army. How old were you when you enlisted?
2: I was 18, right out of high school. I went straight into the army
1: okay and what made you decide to enlist
2: well I really wanted to to travel and kind of change my environment and um i really i didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life and it was suggested to me so I, I went in and um got a chance to go to europe
1: so okay i'm a, a air Force brat myself so I got to be dragged along with my dad when he, he did the same thing to young kid and uh, went in. So I, tr- I truly understand. Now, when you were in the ad- Army, what types of jobs did you have? Or did you have a specific assignment?
2: Yeah, I was uh, a communications expert. I was attached to a air defense artillery unit. And uh, every time they had to go to the field, we had to go to the field with them and make sure that they were able to communicate with each other. So we would set up these large antennas and make sure everybody could talk to each other.
1: Okay. So you mentioned you um you ended up spending some time uh doing tour duty in Europe, is that where you said?
2: Yeah, I was stationed in Germany. Um I did two years over there before I was injured.
1: Okay, and that, that that's what it, your career with the army ended like how much time ended you have by the time it ended?
2: Well after I, I spent about a year and a half on um medical hold after I was injured, so it was a total of Five and a half
1: and a half years okay so you're uh what like 23 or something when you get injured
2: i was 21 just turned 21 i uh turned 21 in december and was injured in february
1: okay and and we talk about this injury could you give us some more details on uh what happened how you did get injured while you were serving
2: yes ma'am um we were all getting ready to get deployed the Uh, September 11th had just happened not too um, long before. So we were going to be one of the first units that were going to be deployed to Kuwait while we waited to um, cross the border in Iraq. So the night before we got deployed, all of us soldiers went to the local watering hole and we did what our soldiers do best, and that is (laughs) um, get a couple drinks. And um, a uh, a big fight broke out at the end of the evening. We were all leaving the club. There was a big brawl that went on in the middle of the parking lot. And during the scuffle, I looked over and I saw my best friend get stabbed by another soldier. The soldier pulled out a knife and he stabbed my friend. And I rushed the soldier to try to to tackle him and get the knife away from him. And as I was coming towards him, he turned the knife on me, slashed at me, and it cut right above my eye about an inch above my left eye it was a long gash about six and a half inches and um so i reached my hand up to 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 cover my eye and then he stuck the knife through my arm and and when he did that i just rushed him and tried to tackle him but while i was trying to tackle him he reached around me with the knife and drove it into my spinal cord Mm. which paralyzed me instantaneously and dropped me to the ground um, and while I was on the ground motionless, I couldn't move from my chest down. He stood over top of me and stabbed me 10 more times. So it was a total of 12 stab wounds. And mm. one, of the, one of the stab wounds went through my rib cage, collapsed my right lung. So I was bleeding out and I couldn't move and my lung was full of blood and um, I pretty much knew that that was going to be my last moment on earth.
1: Wow. What this this soldier, I mean, was he like a, a fellow person in your unit or army or I mean just, I mean, who who was he? Just a random he was guy? Soldier, he
2: was another soldier that was stationed in the same um barracks. Not barracks, but the same uh base that I was. He wasn't mm-hmm. in my direct unit, but I had seen him on post before. I'd seen him at the club many times getting drunk and um he was so we were familiar with each other, but we didn't really know each other that well at all.
1: Wow. I mean, it just seems to be such a, a violent attack. I mean, even though, you know, everybody had been drinking and everything, it just seemed so vicious on his part. Uh, wow.
2: It was extremely, that's the, that still puzzles me to this day because us as soldiers, we would, we would get into brawls periodically, but no nobody ever brought any weapons. Because we all lived together, you know, and
3: mm-hmm. if, we got,
2: we, if we got into a fight, we would, you know, see each other the next day, and so you know, we were young with testosterone flying, and it was a macho thing, and um, but nobody ever brought any weapons, and that's why I couldn't understand. I still can't understand, but his his during the trial, he tried to say that you know he he made himself feel like uh, made himself look like we were trying to. to do physical harm to him, and he was just protecting himself. And I'll get into that a little later on as we talk. But um, it was—he—he he, he blamed the alcohol, and he said that he was using drugs at the same time as well. So,
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, but he was the only one uh, during this this time with a What's unarmed, that? or were you?
2: No, I was. I was completely unarmed. Nobody had any weapons other than him.
1: Okay. Okay. And so you mentioned. Um, my my next question was going to be like what happened to him and you did mention a trial so after that I mean I guess he has to be um, discharged from the service or anything but how did that all go down?
2: Uh-huh. That is, it, it's it's pretty similar to the Trayvon Martin case
1: mm-hmm. what happened
2: with me and him um, I woke up paralyzed from the chest down and um, five days later and. Um, Told I would never walk again It was pretty much devastated. And uh, about three or four days into it, a detective comes in and I have to point him out in the lineup. And so we do all that. And, you know, a couple months had passed after that before the trial started. But once the trial started, his father was a colonel in the military. So his father mm-hmm. came in fully dressed. He outranked the whole entire jury. And mm-hmm. So he had an unfair advantage already with that. And they flew in a high-powered attorney who pretty much put me on the stand, me and my friend on the stand, as these bad, terrible, vicious, um, uncontrolled soldiers who were out to, to kill him or do bodily harm to him and and made me look like this terrible person. I, I used to have a part-time job while I was there, and I was I was a bouncer at a nightclub. Mm-hmm. And, um, so they brought that up and made it seem like I was just so, so overly aggressive and it, it mm-hmm. really painted a really bad picture of me. And he ended up, it dropped from attempted murder, which was, he was facing life to aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. He got two years mm-hmm. um, after he was released, three years, after, three years after he was released, we had to do a retrial. They appealed the case because of a technicality. He had to do the whole trial over again. A lot of the witnesses didn't come because a lot of them were German, and there was some logistics problems. And Mm -hmm. also, he was acquitted of all charges and had to be reimbursed for the two years that he spent in the penitentiary.
1: Wow.
2: And was paid by U.S. tax dollars uh, for two years of active duty military for stabbing me. So it was pretty... That was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was where, you know, we left out, you know, a lot of the, the depression and everything that came after the stabbing, but that led to, like, the most um, significant downfall that I had experienced.
1: Wow. So I'm assuming that this was a um, a military trial and not a civilian trial process.
2: Yes, ma'am. And uh, oh. the military appointed a lawyer for my behalf it wasn't me pressing charges against him it was a military pressing charges against him okay. so actually I, I couldn't have my own attorney they had a military JAG officer do the trial and he had never done anything to this scale it was this was mm-hmm. it was it was an immense you know trial over there it was in the newspapers it was you know it was a big deal and um he didn't handle it very well I, you know and, it wasn't his fault. He just he never
1: no experience,
2: anything, you know. And they had a, a a high-powered attorney who was he was sharp as an axe. He mm-hmm. um he really got his money's worth. I guess.
1: Yeah. So if I'm hearing right, you were in Germany when all of this happened.
2: Yes, ma'am. We were in Germany.
1: Okay, um, and so you're in Germany and you wake up in the hospital you're paralyzed uh you know you're looking at um the mug shots you're trying to you know fathom what what has happened to you uh did, did you have any kind of support system for you there or were you going through all of this alone
3: well the thing is
2: my i was newly married at the time and my wife was eight months pregnant oh
3: wow! And,
2: yeah so she was a german national she wasn't um, she's not German, but her parents moved there when she was little,
3: okay. and
2: so she was there. Her family was there. They didn't really speak that much English, um, and she was of course distraught and ended up having premature labor,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: but luckily they didn't. She didn't have the baby, then they were able to calm it down. But so I had her, and then my mother flew over um, very shortly after. And she was there. My mother was, was awesome support. She was a nurse when I was growing up. So she really took over and, and really, um, really took really good care of me because I was in a German hospital at the beginning when I was in ICU and I didn't understand anything that the German doctors were saying. They barely,
3: mm-hmm. they,
2: they barely spoke any English. Neither did the nurses. So it was, it was a huge communication gap and which made it even scarier than it already was because I didn't know what they were doing to me and why they were doing it and what I couldn't communicate with them at all really. So it was really horrifying actually.
1: Mhm. So you wake up from the incident, you're in the hospital. Um what I mean, I I understand there's a communication barrier, but what are they telling you? What are you what are you grasping is your your outcome?
2: Well, my wife was translating for me as best she could and what they told me is that I had uh, a severed spinal cord, which they weren't sure at the time if it was completely severed or partially severed. And um, they told me that I most likely had a 10% chance of ever walking again. And they said that if I was able to walk, that it would be, um, I would have an extreme limp and, you know, I was probably going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, so that was at the beginning. And then, so I was, I was, of course, just completely crushed by that. And um, But a couple of days later, an infection set in in my body because the knife that he stabbed me with was dirty. Mm. So I had uh, an infection that went all through my blood and uh, it was really bad. I almost died because of that. I actually died a total of three times. On the scene, I bled completely out. And when the ambulance and paramedics came, my heart was stopped. It had been stopped. They stayed around two and a half to three minutes. And they resuscitated me there, um, rushed me into emergency surgery where I died on the table. They had to hmm. resuscitate me again. And then once I was in ICU, um, they had to rush in and shock me with the paddles because my heart went, stopped beating again. So it was a total of three times. And then when the infection set in, I almost died again because... Hmm. My body just was in complete shock, and it was rejecting um, all the infection, and it was it was terrible.
1: Amazing, amazing. I mean, people, you know, like I said, you know, in the beginning, people are always complaining about, you know, wow, I have it rough, I have it rough, but listening to you, uh, some of us might not know what rough really is. <laughs> um, Arnold, I want you to hold on. We're going to take a quick break right now. Uh, we'll be back more with your recovery right after this
0: welcome back to don't box me in on talkzone.com here's your host lana reed Hello,
1: welcome back. I'm speaking with Arnold today, and we were um, just at the point of when he woke up in the hospital and, and started his recovery. Now, you, uh, you mentioned there were some communi- communication issues. You're sitting in a German hospital. You're paralyzed from uh, uh, the waist down, and your wife is due in a month, and they had to stop her from labor. Uh, I'm wondering, th- did the Army step in at any point? Do they offer any counseling services to you at this time?
2: Not at that time. No, this was. I was still in the. Um, they were trying to keep me stabilized at this time. I was still in the German hospital. Um, once I got to, once I got transferred to the American hospital, which was about two and a half weeks after the, the attack took place. That's when they had some psychiatrists come in and speak with me, and um, they were they took really good care of me at the the American hospital, which was such a huge relief when I finally was transferred because now I could speak to everybody, and they were letting me know, um, you know, what I was getting ready to look forward to as far as what kind of treatment I was getting ready to take and what they could do and what I couldn't do. It was it was really uh, a blessing to finally get around, you know, the American hospital. The Germans did great. I mean, they saved my life, but uh, I needed to get to the American hospital so I could really kind of get out of my own head a little bit and start to see what was possible and what I was going to be able to, to accomplish through therapy.
1: Okay. So then I guess I'm understanding the German hospital basically just did a lot of the, the surgery procedures and kind of brought you back to life, and then you went into rehabilitation and all of that stuff in the American hospital?
2: Well, I, I was first transferred to law school, which is um, one of the main military hospitals over there in Germany. It mm-hmm. was like the main transfer station where they bring back a lot of the soldiers from Iraq and, and other wars. So they brought me there. They had to run some tests. They did all the MRIs, CAT scans, everything, and got me stable. And uh-huh. About a week after that, I was medevac to Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. And that's where I started some treatment, but it was just another hold before I went to my long-term treatment, which was... Richmond um, McGuire's Veterans Hospital, and that's where I really started to do the majority of my physical therapy and um, occupational therapy. And I had a psychiatrist, and uh, that's where I really began most of my treatment. But so it was probably like almost a month in, a little less than a month before I got to my treatment.
1: Center. Okay, so a month, a- about a month after the incident, you're back in the United States, then, right?
2: Well, it was three weeks. Yeah, about three weeks before I got back to the United States and then um, another week after that is when I got into the long term treatment so this is at the beginning of March now that I've um, now have gotten to Richmond and that I'm stable now I'm able to sit up in the wheelchair and I have just minimal movement I was able to like just barely move my, my toes on my right foot
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so I. but I was able to sit up and now I'm able to start going to physical therapy and you know, start, um, lifting small amounts of weights and was, was feeling a little better and, uh, was, was getting a little hope because I had some movement and that was a huge deal for me. Once I was able to move my toe for the first time is when I was mm-hmm. able to believe that I was able, that I could walk again. And that's really what I, people ask me how I was able to learn how to walk again. It really became, it really came through belief. And I mm-hmm. believe that anything that you believe to be can be, you know. And at first I was believing what the doctors told me. I believed that there was no chance. And and that's what was at first until I got a little bit of hope when I saw my toe move. Then my belief changed. And that's when things started to move quicker. And I was um, able to start getting more movement more rapidly and, um, uh, about a month and a half, two months later I was able to stand up for my first, for the first time with the help of a uh, physical trainer.
1: Okay, good stuff. So I guess when you arrived at the uh, hospitals in America they had changed your prognosis? They weren't still saying that you had a 10% chance of walking again?
2: Well they raised the percentage to maybe a 30%. They didn't know if I would be able to, to walk unassisted. They believed that I was going to be in a chair, but I would be able to stand to like, me, know, brush my teeth and do things like that. But they weren't sure that I would really be able to walk as well as I'm walking now. And, uh, but I tell everybody, it doesn't matter what the doctors think. Mm -hmm. They're going to give you the worst case scenario. And I believe that through belief and with, with the help of a higher power, whatever your higher power may be, You know, you can overcome whatever situation it is, you know, whatever the prognosis may be, if they've diagnosed you with cancer or brain tumor or whatever it may be, they're going to give you the worst case scenario. It comes down to your faith and your belief on Mm -hmm. what is going to take place in your life.
1: True. True. Now, how much time did you end up spending in the hospital?
2: Total of five months. And it wasn't that it wasn't that bad. When I was released, I was still in the chair, but I was now just at this point able to take a couple steps. My left leg is still extremely weak, um, but my right leg came back pretty strong, and I'm able to drive now, and I, I, I walk with a pretty much unassisted majority of the time. And um, so after I left, I was, I was I was, standing and being able to you know, go up a couple stairs. So it was coming back pretty rapidly.
1: Okay, Okay. so you're like 21, 22, five months into the hospital and they release you you can, you know, your your recovery has started like you said, you can walk Uh, but I'm assuming that you can't go back to your career in the Army. What happens now?
2: Well I was on the medical hold unit for uh, about a year and a half and what I do is just check in with them and they were finalizing all the paperwork. They had to do an investigation on what took place to find out what fault of the military it was and what kind of compensation I was going to receive. And they came back with a pretty bad um, investigation result. They found that it was no fault of the military. So I was not going to be able, eligible for military benefits. I was going to have to be discharged with the honorable discharge and then go through the paperwork as a veteran and apply for a veterans compensation. Hmm. and which, which was bad because I ended up missing out on a lot of the financial help that I desperately needed at the time
3: mm-hmm. but
2: um I was approved as a veteran for the the pension and I got that and I have medical coverage and was able to go back to college so that was a blessing and um, so I was unable to, to to go back to work and I had to really come up with some creative ideas on what I was going to do in my life. And it wasn't until about three years ago that I decided that I was going to write a book in motivational speaking because um, after the event took place and I got home, I fell into a severe depression. And when uh, the court trial happened in the the midst of this and he only received two years and then the, the ruling came back from the investigation that they weren't going to be responsible for it, and then the pain and then everything. And then my daughter was born in the midst of this. And I I really wasn't able to take, take care of her the way I wanted. I was mm-hmm. just fell into um, a deep, dark hole of depression, which I'm sure most people, you know, have, have experienced. If something traumatic happens in their life and you don't know how to deal with it, you just, you know, mm-hmm. for me, I fell into a depression. And that led to me starting to drink alcohol to, to really be able to calm my nerves. I had untreated PTSD where I was having extreme nightmares and night terrors and sweats and I was just really unable to deal with life. And mm-hmm. the only thing that I was that would help me is, you know, a couple beers in the evening, which turned into, you know, more beers and then more and then more and then it just became a full-blown problem over time.
3: And mm-hmm. that was...
2: The severe downfall was and that's what I that's what I try to help people with is, is to understand that there are better ways to deal with what we go through and that there are people there that can help you no matter what you've been through no matter how big or how small it is you know that there you should reach out and you know there's a problem with us men in particular not seeking help you know mm. we're the most, you are are more able to 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 about what's going on it seems and a lot of us guys we try to play that tough guy role which is devastating because we can't bottle it up mm-hmm. the more we bottle it up the more it's going to eat us out from the in, eat us from the inside out and that's why I try to help people with it to know that there are resources out there you know I chose not to talk about it I chose not to tell my psychiatrist my mom my wife my anybody really what was really going on and it was It was the worst thing I could have ever done. So, I'm sorry.
1: No, no, I I was just going to say, I find it interesting that here it is. You've gone through this this physical catastrophe, and you're paralyzed, and the doctors are telling you, you know, basically you'll never walk again, and you came through that, and, you know, you kind of, you know, flipped in the nose, and ha-ha, I managed to do that. It would seem that that would tell Arna, look, I'm sort of invincible, but yet you still tumble emotionally after that. It, I mean, it says that even though we manage to overcome, we still struggle with things.
3: Right. The physical is
2: just on the surface. You know, uh, when I was dealing with the, when I was my my goal was to walk again, and that's all I concentrated on. It was okay. The, the 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 mental pain wasn't as bad. It was it wasn't until I accomplished my goal of walking, then the real underlying issues that I hadn't dealt with, which are the most severe issues, I believe, because the physical stuff will go away. You know, the the wounds healed up mm-hmm. I have bars now, but you know they're not bleeding anymore. You know, I was like I was healed on the outside, but inside it was it was a wreck, <laughs> and You know, I just made some very bad decisions, and that's why I titled my book Every Decision Matters is because we don't realize that everything that we decide to do matters in some way, some shape, or some form. And for me, I didn't see the the magnitude of what I was doing wrong when I was making those bad decisions when I was not reaching out for help. And instead of talking to my wife or somebody else, I chose to go pick up a bottle because it was, much easier to deal with than to deal with what was going on I, I, I thought mm-hmm. and that is the most detrimental and then on top of that the anger and resentment and hatred that I had towards the man who stabbed me was just as detrimental so there was all these things going on on the inside yeah on the outside everybody was so you know excited for me and they were like they were all so inspired by the fact that I was now walking and that I made it through and I'm a soldier and you know I cheated death and all these things but deep down was it was and it was a it was a black hole all throughout my soul and I had really pushed God out of the picture at this time because it felt like everything had failed me like the justice system failed me the military failed me Um, now I felt as though God has failed me. And really what it was, God hadn't failed me. He saved me.
3: It Mm -hmm. was really,
2: it was really me failing myself because I chose to deal with it the wrong way. So anybody who's out there hurting, you know, you know, pick up the phone, call somebody, um, talk to your pastor or your, you know, anybody, somebody's there to help. So that's really one of my main, main messages that I have.
1: Cool beans. We're going to take our second break of the day. Stick in there with me. I'll be right back, right after this.
0: This is Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's Lana Reed.
1: Hello, hello. Today I'm speaking with author of the book, Every Decision Matters. Arnold, Harvey, and before the break we were talking about even though you had started to physically heal emotionally you were still kind of damaged and I'm wondering like at what point did you wake up and say you know what Arnold, this is enough this this has got to change
2: it wasn't until three years ago so there was about a seven year period where I was just in a downward spiral I couldn't seem to get any clean time together. I tried to quit drinking but I still wasn't I was still very prideful and I believed that I could do it on my own and it just kept spiraling further and further out of control and finally on December 31st 2010 I just cried out to God I I wanted to die because I just felt as though um, I should have died that, that night that I got sad because it was just seemed like it was unfair that I was brought back into hell. Mm-hmm. And I was really angry at God for bringing me back because when I experienced death that night, it was a really, a truly a beautiful thing. Like People asked me what I saw, and it really wasn't what I saw. It was what I felt, and I felt the presence of God, and it was the most overwhelming, overpowering feeling I had ever felt. And I was angry that He didn't let me just, go off into that and Mm -hmm. he brought me back to all this misery so I was drunk and I was angry and I was yelling at God and I said either help me or let me die and Mm -hmm. I went to sleep and I woke up and I had this renewed strength like I felt that I could possibly do it this time I I was given another opportunity to try to make it, and I and I told him that if this worked this time, that I was going to help as many people as I could and I wouldn't let them down. And, it's been a long, hard, three-year journey of trying to maintain sobriety and, you know, living life with my pain and dealing with, you know, normal things that everybody deals with, but it's kind of magnified with all the extra pain that I deal with. But, I've been able to to do it, and and he gave me the book to write. Really, I didn't want to do it, but I just kept getting these messages over and over and over and over and over again that I should write this book. And finally, I just, you know, relinquished my will, and the book was written. And now I do motivational speaking. I and really, I've it's been amazing what has happened and what has taken place, and. It's just such a blessing. So about three years ago, to answer the question was when I finally just reached out. And and it was a true, sincere decision that I I made that following morning. So really, the whole thing was decision-making. It was before I was making bad decisions. I wasn't reaching out. I wasn't asking for help. But when I decided to fight and to ask for help is when my life really turned around.
1: Okay, and you know, and that was kind of like my next question, I guess, was, you know, when you decided, you said that was uh, December thirty first, three years ago. Uh, what steps did you take to start making changes so you didn't keep on repeating the same cycle?
2: I checked myself into an outpatient rehabilitation center through the Veterans Administration,
3: Okay. and
2: I just told them I need help, please. Like I, I can't go on like this, and so many doors opened for me. It was. I wasn't supposed to be able to get into the, the, the treatment program until weeks later, but this lady like went through all these hoops and got me in the next day and I just, I just immersed myself in recovery. I just, mm-hmm. I, and, and I started to really develop a relationship with my higher power and as I did that, the skies began to depart, like, mm-hmm. The truth is that the the sun is always shining, even if it's raining outside. Sure. The truth is that the sun is behind the clouds. You just can't see it. But mm-hmm. when the clouds begin to part, then you see that the truth is that the sun is there the whole time. So what had happened was, the truth was that God was there the whole time, and that I had the ability to be saved, but, you know, I just, I just, all I could see was the clouds. But now I understand that even if the clouds are there, that the truth is that there is... The sun is shining behind that. And um, once I realized that, it really began to work my butt off with my recovery and started to talk to people. That's when everything
3: really turned around.
1: Good deal. Good deal. Now, you mentioned that you really didn't want to write the book, but you, you, know, you released your will. The messages were coming. So exactly how did Every Decision Matters come about?
2: It's funny because... I was trying to make some money because I had used up all my GI Bill and I had this little meager check that they were sending me, so I joined the network marketing company and then throughout that process, I had never done it before and I met some really great people and I built a pretty substantial business in a short amount of time and then it collapsed and I was again now faced with decision now, what am I going to do? So. I joined this club called Toastmasters just so Mm -hmm. I could get better at speaking and meet some new people, maybe recruit or whatever, and as I was in Toastmasters and attending these meetings, I learned that I could speak publicly, and I could speak publicly pretty well, and Mm -hmm. I had a pretty compelling story, and people at the meetings were like, oh my gosh, you Mm -hmm. need to write a book, and
3: Mm -hmm. and
2: that's how it really began, so it, it really... I didn't even have any plans on writing a book. I was just trying to build a network marketing company. Mm-hmm. And now, <laughs> it's taking, It's so funny how things just twist and turn. and um, But finally, I sat down to write the book, and I, I wrote the book in 10 days because hmm. there was so much that was in me that needed to come out. So I spent 10, 12 hours a day locked in my office, would not leave until each chapter was done. So I did a chapter a day. I have 10 chapters in the book. And so I wrote the book in ten days, submitted um, the, the manuscript to a tape publishing company, and through a friend of mine that had written the book, she got me in touch with some people. And within four days, I had a contract overnighted to me, and the publishing process started. So it was a, it was such a quick experience that once I finally was like, okay, I took a hold of the signs that were coming. And
3: mm-hmm. I,
2: Within, within 14 days, I had a book written and a contract in my hand.
1: Amazing. Amazing. When you just do what you're supposed to be doing, doors will open up. Yes, Amazing. Ma'am. So also, you, you've you got this other project, um, Conquers United for Change. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Yes, ma'am. Conquers United for Conquers United for Change. Sorry about that. It's That's a right. company that my wife and I started. And what we do is we help empower people that have experienced any kind of traumatic event in their life. It doesn't necessarily have to be as bad as what took place in my life. It could be something like a loss of a job or loss of a loved one. And what we do is we have a system in place that is gonna, that helps people to overcome the adversity that they're facing, whatever it may be. And we have different things, such as I do motivational speaking, We go, I speak at different uh, organizations and clubs and things, and I help people through that. And also, we have mentoring, we do webinars, several seminars, we're actually getting ready to start a podcast, and we're just, our whole life is dedicated to helping people that desperately need help and don't know where to turn, and we're, we're trying to create an empire that is geared for people who are struggling.
1: Okay. Okay. And I, I noticed on your site you've got um, some services like you offer one to one coaching. And uh, w- what are some other things I saw there on the site? The coaching. I, I know I saw the book and the seminars. And you did mention a podcast. Is is that if I have I got everything there?
2: Um, we have the one on one coaching. We have a seminar that we're setting up for January. We also have um, mentoring processes that we can do, um, personal one-on-one coaching. And then we have the tele-seminars. We have, we're building an online community um, through Facebook and through social media where we have a fan page for Conquerors United for Change where we help empower people through that. And um, we, we're, we're just trying every different avenue um, to help people. And if people are interested, my website is Arnold Harvey, uh, the number two the letter N as in Nancy, the letter D as in dog, ArnoldHarveySecond.com, and they can go to our Transformation Center, and they can see all the different things that we have, and we'll be coming out with more stuff. And we're just really trying to – we're networking with other people who are, have overcome adversity and who are doing well, and we're helping them. I mean, we're we're bringing them on board to help with the mission. And so it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be big here in the future, and we're going to really try to go global with it and um, – So, we're really excited about everything that's going on with
1: that. Good deal, good deal. Well, we're going to take our last break of the day, Arnold. Stick with me. I'll be right back talking about what you're doing right after this.
0: You're listening to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's Lana Reed.
1: Hello, hello, hello. I am with author of Every Decision Matters. And, uh, Arnold, before the break, we were talking about the things that you're doing now. And um, that's a Transformation Center. You've got your book out. Uh, you do the public speaking and you mentor people. Uh, I want to ask, you know, what advice do you give to people uh, who... You know, are, I mean, they're going through something, and clearly when you're going through something, all you see is what you're going through. You don't think that, uh, there's something better to come out of this, and, and you've experienced this personally. Uh, you know, sometimes the tools that we resort to are not healthy options, you know, like you resorted to the alcohol. I mean, what would you say to somebody who is teeter tottering on, um, Tools, coping tools that are detrimental to themselves. How how would you advise them to break free of those, those devastating methods?
2: First thing I would tell them is that there is a better life behind what you're going through. No matter what you're going through, there is sun shining behind the clouds. You first have to... Get some people in our circle that we trust. There are There's somebody in your circle that you can trust, whether it's a mother or father or spouse, pastor, whoever it may be, and you need to reach out and let some people know what's going on. First thing I had to do was really humble myself and ask for help. That was the biggest step for me, and I had to be brutally honest with the person I was speaking to. So make
3: mm-hmm. sure you trust
2: the person who you're talking to, but you need to let them know how you're feeling, what's going on within you and then that right there there's something magical about sharing with what's going on inside and not in a way of just you know saying oh woe is me but saying this is what is going on within me and I don't want to go down the wrong road any longer I mm-hmm. want to get help can you help me to help myself and okay. I guarantee you whoever that person is they probably already know that you've been struggling
3: They mm-hmm. you
2: know, we don't think that other people around us realize what's going on with us, but if they're that close to you, they know something's been going on. So you just let them know how you feel and let them know that you're willing to do whatever it takes. Now, you have to make a quality decision to want to change. It can't be a wish. It can't be a hope. It can't be, oh, maybe I want to try this time. Maybe I'll do it on Monday. There has to be a definiteness of purpose. You have to say, I am done living this way. Mm-hmm. I must change. There is no, there is no alternative. When you get to that point, you it's inevitable that you will win. But sometimes mm-hmm. you have to get to that point and we don't understand why we keep falling down and it keeps getting worse. Sometimes, like for me, I'm very hard-headed. I had to be broken completely to mm-hmm. even get to the point of, of wanting to change. But once I made that quality decision, there was nothing that was able to stand in my way, and you have to hold that that goal of what you want to do at hand. Once you make that decision on what you want to do, and you reached out to somebody, now you have to keep that goal in front of your eyes. You have to write it down. I am going to change. I am doing this, you know, and hold it in front of you because there's going to be rough times that are going to come. It's going to it's going to seem bleak at times.
3: Mm-hmm. Change is
2: hard. But if you keep that goal in front of your face at all times and you continuously reach out to people and you just put one foot in front of the other, and don't try to take over the whole world in one day. One step at a time. Will Smith said something that I love that I use all the time. He says when he was nine years old that his father made him and his brother tear down a wall and they had to rebuild it by hand. And mm-hmm. at first he was like, there's no way he could possibly rebuild this wall. It was just too big and too, too much work. But his father said, you "Look, son, you don't set out to build a wall. You set out to lay a brick as perfectly as a brick can be laid, and eventually you'll have a wall."
3: Mm-hmm. And I
2: love that analogy for for life in general. We don't you don't try to take over the whole world and change ten things at the same time. Don't need to lose weight, quit smoking, quit drinking, quit everything at once. What's the biggest problem? Focus on it as as, as being already finished keep that goal in front of your eyes and each day you just put one foot in front of the other
3: mm-hmm. today I'm
2: going to do this and then wait till tomorrow comes and then you say today I'm going to do this and eventually you will have a wall it just mm-hmm. takes time takes effort but just believe and have faith and, and I'm telling you your whole life can be magical compared to you, you never know that you know as bad as it is whatever you're going through they have no idea what's on the other side and I'm telling you what's on the other side it's a beautiful experience so just keep fighting and you'll make
1: it true now because I deal a lot of times with um, people in recovery from certain drug and alcohol addictions um, I understand the process that although they commit to the goal of sobriety there's a lot of there's a lot of falling and, and getting back up and falling and getting back up Um and and this occurs with people with other struggling with other issues in life. Uh, what kind of encouragement can you provide to those individuals? Because it just really it does seem bleak. Like here I am, I find myself back in the same spot over and over again. You know, the cycle has to stop. It has to. It gets very disheartening at times. Um, how can somebody focus on the prize when they're struggling with these kinds of issues?
2: Well, for me, what I had to do is I had to find something that was worth fighting for, because at times I didn't, I didn't want to pick it up and try again and know how hard it was going to be and how how painful it was and all the shame and all the guilt and all the things that come along with that. But for me, I had to find something that was worth fighting for, and for me, I found my children and my wife. That was, that was, what I. It was worth me getting up and trying one more time. Whoever it is in your life, somebody is counting on you. There's mm-hmm. somebody that, if you go out from this world, it's going to devastate somebody. And if you can't find it within yourself to fight for yourself at the beginning, fight for whoever's in your, you, you know, who your mother, your father, anybody, and say like, look, I know you. And you're not supposed to do recovery for anybody else because it won't work. But mm-hmm. if you find yourself in a position where you don't have the strength and you don't know if it's even worth going on anymore. For me, I had to find something worth fighting for. And at the beginning, I just would look at my daughters and I would say, this is for you, the reason I'm going to go to this meeting tonight, the reason I'm going to go share when I don't feel like sharing, the reason I'm going to go talk to this counselor, or the reason I'm going to do this is for you. And at the beginning, that was what I needed.
3: And mm-hmm.
2: after, after that, it, it became about me. And once it became about me, then it was able to get the ball really, truly rolling. But to get out of the gate, sometimes, and get back up and get in the ring again, because it hurts getting hit every single time you get in the ring. You know you're going to get in, the, you're going to be brawling. But if, if it's if it's worth something, then you'll get in there and you'll do it. And then eventually, it'll become about you. But you know, for me, I had to I had to find it. Had to, it was my
3: kids.
1: So. Mm-hmm. Okay, find something. To... Now, in your your work that you're doing now, and talking to people um, and helping people overcome challenges, do you ever run around uh, run across situations uh, where you say to somebody, "Look, that battle is not yours. You know, we can't fight each and every battle. That's that's not yours to fight. Let that go and move on to the next challenge. I mean, do we do we have to uh, fight every battle?
2: no and you have to you have to relinquish the struggle sometimes we have there it comes down to for me i had to find a power greater than myself as well as my children and to know that i couldn't change everything i couldn't i couldn't make myself better i couldn't get the trust back from my family right away i couldn't change how a person felt about me or Certain things that I just could not change. And I had to release those to my higher power. And I had to say, you know, God, you're bigger than this issue. You're bigger than what is going on. I can't fight it alone. I need your help. And I found that when we humbly ask for help and we truly believe that there is a possibility that this help can come, the help comes. When I would say, God, I just need strength for today can you please help me through today i made it through that day and you know i had to, to let go of things i had to forgive i had to, the person who stabbed me i have to pray for that man and his family and hope that you know what he did he never does again and that he's learned from it and that he's helping people now as a result of what is taking place and that was one of the hardest things i did too but we have to forgive we have to move on and we have to allow a power greater than us get us to that point because I couldn't do it by myself. I tried as many times as I can as I can think of to try to do it myself and I was unable to, but there, there is something that's holding all this together and that has our best interest at heart. And if we reach out to that power, whatever you choose to call it, it will answer. So.
1: Good deal. Good deal. Well, Mr. Harvey... I always say my hours go so fast and I'm here at the end of another one. Um, my guest today has been author Arnold Harvey. Please, please, please check out the website at Arnold Harvey That is Arnold Harvey, the number two in D.com and buy the book, register for a coaching session and, uh, find out how you too can be empowered in your life. Arnold, I want to wish you much success in all that you do. And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing time with me today.
2: Thank you so much. And thank you to all the listeners out there who are listening. And if anybody needs any speakers or anything, I, I travel and I, I speak at events or organizations or, you know, we're here to help. So just, just contact us through the website and be more than happy to come out and, and help you in in your event. So thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your call
1: today. My pleasure, my pleasure. That is all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life.